You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, my name's Ben, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. But you've officially met me now, so that's good. I um, just want to thank you for your warm welcome of me and my family. It's truly a blessing and a privilege for me to be able to bring God's word to you today. How about I pray for us? Heavenly Father, 2,000 years ago, your risen son met with his disciples, telling them everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Father, just as your spirit opened their minds and their hearts to know Christ better, I pray that you would do the same for us today in this place. Please, Lord, by your spirit, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds too, so that we can see Christ in this psalm. And seeing Christ clearly, we ask that your spirit would move us to live all of our lives for him. In his powerful name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been surprised by the value of something? I wonder, have you ever been surprised or perhaps even shocked at how much something is worth? I had this interesting experience last year. Um, Perhaps you, like me, had a lot of time at home. Uh, And so I decided, how about I clean out my garage and have a look at some of the things that I've got lying around not doing much. And so I was looking through some things and I came across this really big box. And I opened it up and it was filled with a whole bunch of Disney children's magazines. Um, Look at all of them. And I thought, look, I'm, a, I'm an adult now. I probably don't need these anymore. And they're just taking up space. And so I lifted up the box. It was a really heavy box. I lifted up the box, put it over to the recycle bin, and I picked it up and thought about putting it in. But in that moment, I thought, I wonder if someone might be interested in these. I wonder if somebody might want these. And so instead of throwing them in the recycle bin, I, I laid them all out in date order and started taking photos of them. And I thought, look, I'll put them online. If someone wants them, they can have them. And at the end of the day, what have I lost? Because I was just going to recycle them anyway. And after a month, every single one sold. Every single one. Clearly somebody, or in this case a whole bunch of people, saw value in something that I had overlooked. I wonder what you have lying around at home which is surprisingly valuable. Uh, now to be clear, I'm, I'm not, I haven't mentioned this because the application of this sermon is to go and put all your things on Gumtree. That's, that's not what I want you to do. No, the reason why I've started this way is because I suspect 
our psalm today might be one that you've got sitting around, maybe collecting dust, maybe in a box somewhere. And look, I get it, I get it. Compared to, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, and, you know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and all these wonderful lines in other psalms, well, compared to that, Psalm 110, it's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It's a bit weird. Like, it doesn't seem to make sense. It's got wombs of the dawn, whatever that means, and some obscure Bible name starting with M. And, like, it sounds, like, violent and oppressive to our Western cultural ears. Like, what... What do we do with this? It's like, my guess is that if you look on the Kurong website, you're not going to see a motivational poster with Psalm 110 on it. You're just not. So what do we do with this strange psalm? I wonder if you're tempted to chuck it out. Well, before you do, I invite you to check out if others can see some value that we might have missed. And what becomes clear very quickly is out of all of the Old Testament books, out of all the Old Testament books, the book of Psalms is the one that is quoted the most in the New Testament. And then if you kind of drill down one more level, you go, which Psalm appears the most in the New Testament? And if you read Jono's email, This week, you would already know, it's Psalm 110. Psalm 110? Is that surprising to you? It certainly is for me. Like, out of all of the books and the chapters and passages in the Old Testament, like, this is the one that the New Testament uses the most. It's kind of like the biblical version of going viral. Is that surprising for you? See, clearly for the New Testament writers, this messianic psalm was highly significant for their understanding of who Jesus was. Clearly they could all see the immense value and treasure of this psalm that we might overlook. And over the years, I've come more and more to deeply appreciate and value the unexpected treasure that this psalm is. And my hope and my prayer for each of us today is that if you don't already, we would each come to see the immense value of this psalm too, both for our understanding of Jesus and also for the very real difference that that should make in our day-to-day walk with him. So I hope you're excited to jump into Psalm 110. Uh, to give you an idea of where we're going to go with this, first, we're going to spend a bit of time zooming into verses 1 and 4 and work out why they are both so important for our understanding of who Jesus is. And then with that in our minds, I then want us to then think about how can I move this knowledge into my heart, into my actions Let's consider how these wonderful verses can and actually do make a big difference in our day-to-day journey with Jesus, because they do. Uh, So if you don't already, please make sure you've got a copy of Psalm 110 
visible to you. I've got some other bits and pieces up on the screen, but if you can have access to Psalm 110, that would be really, really helpful. And if you're looking for a page number, we're looking for page 535, if you've got one of these black Bibles. Now, the reason why I want you to have a copy of this visible is because I want you to be able to to read these words for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. I I want you to be able to read these words. Uh, And and I'm not going to lie, just, you know, full disclosure at the start, this is going to be a bit of uh, a lot of thinking along the way. You know, if you've ever seen the movie The Case for Christ, there's this recurring scene where Lee Strobel, uh, he kind of has this pin board and a whole bunch of just newspaper articles and string and all these things going on. There's a shot from it there. Um, he's trying to solve this mystery, and Psalm 110 is going to be a bit like that, okay? It might make our head hurt a little bit, but Psalm 1 says that a spiritual workout in God's word is good for us. It's good for us. And so I believe that the payoff will be worth it. Trust me. Okay, Psalm 110, verse 1. A Psalm of David. This is a declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There seems to be a lot going on in just one verse here, doesn't it? I wonder what word or phrase stands out to you. Did you notice that there's quite a few characters involved? So we've got David, the author, and then we've got Lord, and then my Lord. And then at the end, there's a whole bunch of enemies enemies being made into an Ottoman or something. Like, what's, what's happening here? Well, there's a couple of important things that will help us unravel this first verse. So first, if you take a look uh, at our psalm up on the screen as well as in your Bible, you'll notice that we've got a couple of different titles for it. So it says the priestly king, there's 110, and there's a psalm of David. But if you look at the line that says a psalm of David, uh, it's important to know that That little line there is part of the original Hebrew poetry that makes up this psalm. It's kind of like the first half of the first verse, if you will. Uh, And if you've got a Bible and you flick through it, uh, through all the psalms, you'll probably notice that about two-thirds of them have this little heading on them. Uh, I think they like to call them superscriptions or something. But it's not not important what they're called. But anyway, so that line, the psalm of David, it's part of the original text. And so we can see that King David is the author of this psalm. See, this psalm takes place from from his point of view. And that's a really significant detail, which we'll come back to in just a moment. Now, the second helpful thing for us is, if you look at verse 1, you'll notice that the word Lord appears in quick succession there. We've got declaration of the Lord to my Lord. 
Now, it's important to know that there's a different Hebrew word used for each of those. So in our Bibles in the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in uppercase, that always relates to, uh, it's an abbreviation of uh, our God, Yahweh. It's his name in the Old Testament. Uh, But the second word here, the second Lord, uh, it's the word Adonai. And it's, sure, it can relate to God, but it can also relate a bit more broadly to someone who is a, a leader or a master or a ruler, that kind of thing. If you've ever watched Downton Abbey, I just think Lord Grantham, okay? Uh, He's the master of the house, uh, the leader of the town. He's the boss. Everyone answers ultimately to him. Okay, so we've got David, we've got Yahweh, and we've got another master or ruler there as well. But it gets even more interesting when when we think about the fact that David who wrote this, he is the king of Israel. See, at the time of writing this psalm, David was seen as the highest authority in the kingdom under God himself. And yet somehow, somehow, David, the highest master in the land, listens to this divine conversation and he writes, this is a declaration of Yahweh to my master. Can you see how that's a bit peculiar? See, David's enthroned as king. Like, he is like the Lord, if you will. Uh, And so we would automatically just assume that this psalm is related to him. Like, we, we would just sort of assume that God would declare this kind of oracle, this sort of prophecy to David himself But it's not about him. See, David is clearly not talking about himself. Uh, In this psalm, the king suddenly recognises somebody else as his king. This psalm is about him. This psalm is about the king's king. And if we fast forward to the Gospels... Jesus uses this same unexpectedness of Psalm 110 to to stump the religious leaders. You see, in Jesus' day, the the expectation was that um, God would send a Messiah, a deliverer, and that he would be a descendant of David. Uh, David was seen seen as like the the ultimate example of of a Messiah. Uh, And so it would make sense that he would be a descendant of David. But have a look, we'll have a look at um, Mark 12. I think it's up on the screen. Here it is. So while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son, he asks. And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. See, the the impact of, of Jesus' challenge might be perhaps lost on us a little because we typically regard the newest things as the best things. 
If something's new, it's better. Like, of course, the iPhone 12 is better than my iPhone 6 because it's just, it's just newer. And every year, Apple seems to say, it's the best iPhone we've ever made. Of course it is. <laughs> you know, it's newer, it's newer, it's better. But in a generational Jewish culture like this, they thought differently. You see, for them, the, the older something is, the better it is. The older something is, the more important it is. Like, forget about the new. If you want the best thing, get the old thing. That's where it's at. That's the best. And I experienced this when I visited Jerusalem a couple of years ago. Uh, I visited the, the, uh, the Western Wall, which is um, a retaining wall on the, on the side of the old Temple Mount where the temple used to be built before the Romans destroyed it. Uh, and that particular section of wall is the most holy, significant, important place for Jews today. And uh, so they would often go on pilgrimages around, um, from all around the world and come here and pray. Now, at one point, a couple of years ago, they... Um, the, uh, the Israeli people, they decided, well, we need to make it a bit bigger. So they built a, a new and improved section and put it right next to it. But then to their surprise, everyone just kept on going back to the old one. Because, and I guess it makes sense. Like, why use the new when you could use the old? That's where it's at. And so Jesus, by using Psalm 110, he's basically saying to the religious leaders, Sure, the Messiah is a descendant of David, but think about it. David wouldn't call any mere descendant of him his master because any descendant of David, would, they'd automatically look back at David and see David as their master. And yet David addresses this descendant as his master. How can that be? And so Jesus presents this great mystery that the religious leaders, they just can't unravel. Like, see, their, their long-awaited Messiah kind of had to be a descendant of David, but he also somehow had to also be someone who came before him. Otherwise, David couldn't call him his master. How does this work? And there is only one person who would ever step into this paradox. John 1.15 says, John, that's John the Baptist, testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And then in John 8, Jesus himself the embodiment of this glorious paradox was asked by the religious leaders, are you, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Because, of course, Abraham, he was like the original recipient of God's promise. Like he was, like if, he was the best, you see. They are, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets? Uh, who do you claim to be? And then verse 56, Jesus replied, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. 
The Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And then Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Like, I existed way before Abraham. See, only in Jesus do we see the divine, eternal Son of God who existed before David, before Moses, before Abraham, before all things came to be. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than David, even greater than Abraham, the first recipient of God's kingdom promises in Genesis 12. And then 2,000 years ago, at the first advent, in the hometown of David, a newborn cry is heard as the promised son of David is born. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. John 1.14 in a glorious moment, which continues to blow my mind, blow my little mind, and, and, and I hope that I'm not the only one here, these things just come together. Um, if you know the song, Hillsong expresses the magnificence of this, of the incarnation of God in Jesus becoming a human. Uh, in their song, End of Days, I wonder if you've heard it before, uh, and that they sing, You came to earth, that you created, you walked beneath the stars you named. Jesus Christ, the Lord our God. You authored life and you wrote yourself in. You dwelt in time that you designed. Creator lived in his creation. Completely man, completely God. A psalm of David. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Lord, to my King, to Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. See, in this psalm, the, the King sits enthroned in the heavens up by God's side. And it's clear from the verses that follow that he has complete conquest over his enemies. Like they are under his feet, verse 1. He rules over them, verse 2. He will destroy opposing authorities, verse 5. He will cover the nations with corpses, verse 6. This was certainly the expectation of what the promised Messiah would do. In the days of the Old Testament, there were always enemies threatening the people of God. You know, the Philistines or the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and more and more. And in the time of Jesus, the Romans, they were the oppressive enemy force. And so people were expecting the Messiah to, to liberate the Jewish people, the Israelites, from the grips of this empire. And if we know anything about the life of David as king, he himself, it certainly sounds like the victorious ruling authority that he lived by in his prime. But, but wait a second, wait a second. 
this psalm isn't about David, is it? It's about Jesus. And as far as I can tell, Jesus didn't do any of these violent things. In fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, he, he particularly says and ta- teaches us to love our enemies and, and pray for those who persecute us. And, and even, he even willingly let himself uh, be taken by his enemies, be falsely convicted and be killed by them. And again, we're, we're left scratching our heads, aren't we? If this is about Jesus... Well, how does this work? So there must be more to this picture. There must be more. There must be something that we've overlooked or we haven't considered yet. And there is. See, in amongst all this uh, language of conquest and victory and defeating enemies, in verse 4, we find another mysterious declaration of God to the Messianic king. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. See, this king is somehow also a priest. See, the, the king's king is a, is a permanent priest. And now when we hear the word priest these days, I'm sure a whole bunch of different things can come up in our minds, particularly depending on your own religious backgrounds in the church. Uh, but in the Old Testament, the priests were quite different, and they had a very important role. You see, right from the start of the Bible, right from the start of the pages there, we, we see a God who just deeply desires to dwell and live with his people on earth. But ever since the fall in Genesis 3, there's been a great enemy preventing a holy God from dwelling with humans. And that enemy is sin. See, it opened the floodgates for the forces of evil at work in the world. In our own hearts, there's so much evil even in ourselves. And so priests, they were in this unique position of being mediators between God and people. So they were representatives of the people up to God. And then they represented God back to the people. And this vital sacrificial ministry, which you can read about particularly in Leviticus, that these priests were acting on behalf of the sinful nation around them. And them doing that enabled men and women to live in fellowship with God. But sin was always a problem for God's people. If you were here last week, you'd hear this refrain, these great things and then they stuffed up, these great things and the people stuffed up. It's always sin. And even the great King David, for all of his military conquests, ultimately, he was undone by his sinful heart. The man after God's own heart, we read in Psalm 51, he prayed, God, create a clean heart for me. For the people of God, 
The real enemy, it wasn't the Philistines, it wasn't the Babylonians, it wasn't the Romans. The true enemy was the force of sin and evil, which no amount of military firepower could overcome. And as we heard last week, that sin, it is a problem for us too. We can't just assume that we're somehow better than them just because we're, we're newer, therefore better. Left to ourselves, we are no better than the generations who came before us. See, we need more than just a king. We need a priest too. We need someone who can defeat the power of sin. Uh, and so Psalm 110 declares that the Messiah will not only be a conquering king, for him to truly save his people, both inside and out, he will need to be a priest too. And this is how the New Testament understands Jesus' work on the cross. See, when Christ gave himself in our place on our behalf, it was a victory. It was a triumph over the forces of evil and sin. See, the spiritual enemies of God, once and for a word, defeated. I love how Colossians 2 says it. It says, he, that is Jesus, he cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it on the cross. Don't you love that? Nailing it on the cross. In this way... On the cross, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That sure sounds like Psalm 110 conquest to me. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul uses this Psalm 110 language to show how Christ will defeat the final enemy, death itself. For he, that is Christ, again, must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. See, all of a sudden, all this imagery of defeating enemies in Psalm 110, it becomes a bit clearer, doesn't it? See, we need someone who can defeat the power of sin once and for all. The Messiah that we need is both a reigning king and a perfect priest. And I think one of the benefits of our culture is we can kind of get how someone can be two different roles at once. Like, it's pretty normal to have uh, two or more jobs these days. Uh, One of my colleagues that I'm working with He's a lovely person, and he is both an Anglican priest and a lecturing king, uh, king, a lecturing doctor of engineering. Now, see, these days, most of us tend to have different roles and titles in some form or another. But in biblical times, it was much less common, and particularly for kings and priests. In fact, if you, read, uh, if you read 1 Samuel 13, we can see how David's predecessor, King Saul himself, he ultimately lost his crown because at one point he dabbled in the ministry of a priest. See, at least from the Bible's point of view, you can't have someone who is both a king and a priest. 
Like the Lord just says you can't. You see, King David, he came from the tribe of Judah. And all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Completely different tribes. And yet, Psalm 110, God freely declares, you are a king and you are a priest. At which point again we go, so how can this be? Is he contradicting himself? What's going on? The plot thickens again. But notice the last line of verse 4. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. That's a bit unusual. And you can imagine King David as he hears this divine oracle. You can just imagine him, you know, he sits, he sits back on his chair and starts scratching his head too. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Oh, where have I heard that before? And so he walks over to his collection of scrolls. You know, he pulls out, he pulls out the first one because he's like, well, might as well start from the start. He pulls out Genesis and he starts looking through it. Okay, we've got Noah. Okay, we've got the floods. We've got Abraham. We've got Lot. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. He eventually gets to Genesis 14, verse 17 and 18, the only other place in the Old Testament where this name appears. And he's reading, After Abram returned from defeating King Chedorlaomer uh, uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley. That is the king's valley. He keeps reading. Then, oh, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is an abbreviation of Jerusalem. King of Jerusalem. He brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. David looks up. What did I just read? Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, he was a priest to God. A king who was also a priest. Turns out there is actually a priestly king after all. And what's more, Melchizedek, he was on the scene at the time of Abraham meaning his priesthood and kingship existed way before Abraham's great-grandson Levi was even born, way before the Levitical priesthood, way before the kings of Israel. Remember what we were saying before about how the, the older something was, the better it is? Well, in Melchizedek, not only do we have a pattern of a king and a priest together, but the fact that he also predates the Levitical priesthood by several generations, it makes his priesthood infinitely more valuable than the Old Testament priests. And now in Psalm 110, it's inauguration day. God is swearing in a new leader, the Messiah. He is the king's king. He is the permanent priest. He's a trustworthy king we need. And he's the faithful priest who will never leave his office. The author of Hebrews 
absolutely loves Psalm 110. And if you haven't read Hebrews, read it and you'll appreciate how much Psalm 110 is in there. And the author, he beautifully brings this together for us. Hebrews 7 from 19, halfway through. He says, A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And none of this happened without an oath. For others, as in the Levites, became priests without an oath. But, but Jesus, he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Psalm 110, verse 4. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant Now, many have become Levitical priests since they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Again and again and again, they kept on dying. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives. He always lives to intercede for them. See, this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. I hope you're you're starting to see why Psalm 110 was so valuable for the New Testament authors and for us today. Every time I keep thinking through this, it just blows my mind how it all works together. But if, if if all I did for us today was just fill your head with a whole bunch of fun things, like, oh, I know where I can find Melchizedek in the Bible, like, that would just be a waste. That would be a waste of this moment together. Because I truly believe that the implications of this psalm can and should make a massive difference in our lives. And so I want us to now turn and consider what that means for us in our day-to-day walk with Jesus in 2021. And I want to mention just two things. I'm sure there's more, and I hope we're going to have a chance to share with each other in just a little bit too. I want you to keep your brainstorming happening. But here's here's just two things to get us started. First, Psalm 110 shows us that God is Faithful. God is faithful. I think we'd all admit that this year, this past year, has been pretty tough. All sorts of different reasons. Like our, our churches have had to close their red doors with physical gatherings banned. National and international fear as a virus, virus silently wreaks havoc on jobs and families. Like children are forced to teach themselves school, Um, trusted Christian role models falling from grace, world leaders wielding their power for division and distrust. In amongst all this, Australia has had its worst year for family violence than than it has ever experienced. That breaks my heart. And so many more stories that will never be told and never be heard. Sometimes we can be tempted to lose heart, can't we? 
just lose hope. But Psalm 110, it speaks to our insecurities and our fears. See, we aren't given all the reasons why these things happen, but we are reminded again and again that we worship a God who is faithful. God can be trusted. He can be trusted to do what he says he will do. See, and the fact that God makes a promise in Psalm 110 and then shows that he keeps that promise in the pages of history through Jesus is such an encouragement for me in these times of uncertainty. I love what Peter Adams says about Psalm 110. I think it'll be up on the screen as well. See, the, he, he, uh, Peter Adam, he says, the promise made to Jesus by God in Psalm 110, it was fulfilled when God's Son became incarnate, when he died on the cross as the effective atoning priest and sacrifice, and when God raised him from death at his right hand where he continues as a priest forever. I love this last line. The story of our salvation in Christ is the story of God doing what he swore he would do. Isn't that great? And the book of Hebrews has this wonderful line in chapter 10 where it says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope. Like, let's keep on going. Let's keep persevering. Why? Since he who promised is faithful. Uh, Here's the second thing that I want to share that Psalm 110 shows us. And it's the answer to the question, what is Jesus doing right now? You know, January 2021, what is Jesus doing right now? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself that question? What is Jesus doing right now? What is he actually doing you see, see, so often we can have such a small view of Jesus uh, like that basically just reduces him to some guy who died 2,000 years ago. And that's about it. And I find myself so often, if I'm communicating the gospel to other people, like that's about where it ends. I don't know about you, maybe you're better than me, but just, it just seems to be about this guy that died 2,000 years ago. What is Jesus actually doing right now? Well, according to Psalm 110, Jesus is currently sitting enthroned in the heavens as our high priest forever. And since God is faithful, forever must include right now. He holds his priesthood permanently, according to Hebrews 7. That means he always lives to intercede for us. Remember, a priest was that mediating role, representing us to God, God to us. That's what Jesus is doing right now for me, for you, for every single one of you who calls yourself a Christian. What is he doing right now? He is interceding for you. See, Jesus himself listens to you cry out to him in lament. He hears your gratitude. He hears 
when you're waiting patiently on the Lord. He forgives you when you bring your daily sin and failures to him. You know, when we say that Christians have a, have a relationship with Jesus, like that's not a cliche. I know it sounds like it might be a cliche, but it's not. It's totally and completely true. If you are a Christian, then you have a relationship with an actual person at the right hand of God right now. How does that make you feel? I mean, maybe, maybe you don't have that many friends. Maybe you've had a history of abuse and trauma and you just can't bring yourself to trust anyone fully. Because of Psalm 110, we know that our compassionate God, through the person of Jesus, he provides at least one real and healthy and safe relationship for each person. And I think that makes a world of difference. It makes a world of difference. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let's just keep going, friends. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weakness. But he's a person. But one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. My friends... My brothers and sisters in Christ, as we sing in a moment, as we discuss and share with one another, as we pray, as we confess our sin to Christ, I urge you today, I urge you as long as it is called today to cling to our compassionate King and Priest and know that he is for you. He is for you. Jesus will never leave you. He will never drive you away. He is our priest. He is our king forever. I'm so, I'm so thankful for the unexpected treasure of Psalm 110. And may we continue to see its immense value for the journey that we are going on as well. Uh, as we sing together uh, now, um, Rather than have me close in prayer, I invite you to treat the beautiful lyrics of this song as a prayer to our King and to our Priest. Amen.